Welcome to Popular History, a library of Catholic knowledge and insights brought to you daily. We've got another interview today. This one is a bit different in origin because instead of me reaching out to a friend or a fellow podcaster with a topic in mind, this is the first time I've had a fan reach out with their own topic. That fan was Chris Tollworthy, and that topic was the traditional Catholic view of history, which Chris was eager to discuss through the lens of his book on comic book artist Jack Kirby, of all people, which naturally had tie-ins to the book of Genesis, and which, of course, aspires to point to the future in something of a prophetic way. If that description doesn't hint strongly enough without elaboration, and I really do think it does, but just to be safe, just know that Chris is a fellow rambler, so this interview can be charitably described as wide-ranging. If that's not something you're up for today, well, don't say I didn't warn you. Also, as you may have noticed, I'm on a bit of a stretch of longer format content. To keep some balance and sanity, I've decided to release this interview unedited, including keeping the 45 seconds or so where you can hear Chris and I trying to narrate our efforts to reconnect during a spot where, for some reason, we stopped being able to hear one another. Could I have edited that part out? Sure. Would it have been faster to edit that out and then not have to write this portion of my explanatory note? Also sure. Did I do that? Well, obviously not. So, here we are, fair warning and all. Finally, you are under no obligation to agree with any of Chris's takes on things. For my part, I'm an old dog who refuses to be taught new tricks, in no small part because my brain doesn't have room for everything kicking around in Chris's brain. But I'll tell you this. Anytime you, dear listener, write a book and then want to talk about it on the show, I'll hear you out. Anyways, enough admin. Let's chat with Chris. Hello, Greg. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Chris. Um, So, yes, so... I appreciate you uh, being willing to come on and just have a little chat. Um, you mentioned, you know, you had some ideas and some notions about uh, Catholic education, and we had a bit of, you know, discussion back and forth over email, and I thought it would be fun just to kind of give ourselves a baseline at some of the, you know, traditional Catholic view of history and how that all works. Um, I figured we'd go ahead and just have this chat before I really start down into the big timeline. This is, of course... Um, having just finished the uh, series on the new Cardinals, which uh, very rudely interrupted my uh, my plans for giving my general overview. But uh, I suppose the Pope will do what the Pope does. So uh, welcome, Chris. Thank you for reaching out. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for letting me on. Uh, I do appreciate this. Yes, I mean, just to be clear, it's quite obvious uh, I'm not a Catholic. Um, I suppose I'm sort of Catholic curious, I guess you'd say. I was raised as a Mormon. I mean, as you probably know, Mormons traditionally in the past anyway were very anti-Catholic, classic, uh, evangelical, Protestant. Well, basically, Mormons have evangelical Protestant envy. It's quite embarrassing, really. They steal all their ideas and try and pretend it's original. And one of them was, you know, great church. And the hilarious thing There's is... some original uh, stuff in Mormonism, for sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. No, I just thought it's kind of curious. It's really been quite hilarious to people who were in the church or people who watch it, the church to us, you know, being Mormonism, 
in that they used to be very anti-Catholic, but now everything they used to blame the Catholics for and attack them for, they do themselves. <laughs> because it's just practical. I mean, this is the thing, this is why I respect Catholicism, and you've got experience. After 2,000 years, you know, you've got over the teething troubles that other um, other churches have. You know, you start off by thinking, you know, I'm the greatest, I do nothing wrong, anything I want must be from God, and the rest of you can all go to hell, quite literally, and aren't we wonderful? And you know, after a little while, it gets very, very embarrassing, very untenable. And once, once you've got a long history of everything you've ever done wrong, everybody knows it, you get a bit of a maturity. And Mormonism yes. isn't quite there yet. C certainly, Catholicism is not without its own issues, but yes, those are not... Uh... Those are not born of uh, inexperience, as it were. They, in fact, may be born of the opposite. <laughs> yes. I mean, in, on, when I was on a missionary, we used to have this book called uh, The Great Apostasy, all about how terrible the Catholics were. <laughs> and, uh, what, what its biggest beef was that you know, we, the Mormons, we've got a revelation. You know, we've got a prophet who strides forward and gives what God says. Whereas these Catholics, they just have committees. <laughs> they have these uh, great councils and they just they discuss doctrine. And, and, you can't discuss doctrine, either comes from God or it doesn't. Well, we were so dismissive. And now that's exactly what we do. It's, it, Mormonism stopped having prophets about, officially, they still have them, but in practice they stopped about 150 years ago, because every time they'd say something it would go horribly wrong. <laughs> and so now it's like plausible deniability is, is the name of the game. And so everything Mormonism teaches it goes through multiple committees that has to be carefully decided and uh, reversed and denied right. and you know it's like yeah that's that's just that's how the real world works you know <laughs> you've got to and get a lot of attention to, get... to the theologian behind the curtain and quite possibly the lawyer too yes yes oh that's embarrassing we did, didn't even have a theologians it was like we were proud of not having a theology and that we just had revelation but it basically meant it changed every day you know after a while it became really obvious like didn't you teach the opposite thing last week no 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 we've never changed hasn't everything you've ever taught changed no, 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 we've never changed. So yes, uh, I do respect um, churches which have been around a bit, have made their mistakes, have a bit of humility, but also have a bit of staying power. I mean, the other thing we used to accuse the Catholics of was you know, having all that money. And I don't know if you followed Mormon scandals at all. <laughs> the, the latest one is uh, they just admitted to having this slush fund of uh, which they never ever used, they don't know what to spend it on, of $135 billion. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> they, they, they got uh, fined $5 million by the uh, Security Exchange Committee or whoever it is for hiding this stuff and basically lying about it because they didn't want anybody to know they got $135 billion. They never spent it on anything. And it's like, you're a church. Surely you can think of something to spend that on. So, yeah, it's like, and we used to accuse the Catholics of hoarding money. Oh, man, it's embarrassing. So, yes, respect. Yeah. I better get, better get started, doesn't I? I'm going to keep you up all night. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, because we're starting at Genesis, aren't we? Yeah, man. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It yes, only right. took me, you know, about 30 hours to go through the content that you were proposing for tonight. So, you know, <laughs> yes, I, I feel cool. for you with the condensing. Yes, and there's me writing all these notes, thinking I'm going to be really, really quick, and I've just been rambling for about 10 minutes. You're probably falling asleep. Falling asleep. Um, right, yeah, my name's Chris Tolworthy. I wrote this book called Jack Kirby's History of the Future where I basically argue that mythology is the best guide to the past and, and the future. And I'm here to praise Catholic education. Uh, specifically, what I mean is um, I love Genesis. And I found most well, most scholars think that Genesis is, they'll pat it on the head and say very, very nice stories. And I'm sure there's some, there's some good bits in there, but it's basically terrible. And the rest of the Bible is even worse. 
and the scholars don't take it seriously at all. And the right. Protestants either have the Catholic view, as far as I can tell, that, well, I mean, you've obviously corrected me. I get the impression that the Catholic view is it's correct, but we're not going to be dogmatic about it. And that you'd, right. you'll stand yeah. up and say, you know, uh, we, are teach, we are going to teach you about Adam and Eve. We are going to teach you about the flood and we're not going to be apologetic about it. But at the same time, you know, there's a thousand different ways to look at it. Whereas a lot of uh, Protestants and Mormons, for example, um, would say you know, that the flood has to be a, a global flood. End of story. It's, it's the phrase uh, trust but verify, right? When approaching, especially like Genesis, for example, I think is a fair way to sum up the Catholic attitude. Exactly, exactly. That's it. I mean, verifying is what it comes down to. I was going to talk about this about scholarship and why it always bugs me. Uh, I'll get to that, but I'll start off why, why it isn't writing a book about Genesis. Well, it's not actually a book about Genesis, it's a book about you know, mythology, but I do spend a long time in one of the appendices on Genesis, and I absolutely love it. And in talking about it to other people, no one's picked up on the Genesis stuff. Like, I want to tell somebody about this. This is fascinating. I love this stuff. So yes, I and I, I did ask your permission to call you a bit of a mad scientist because I do love that you have a book about Jack Kirby that is not actually about the uh, the prophecy stuff. It's about Genesis, um, and you're in love with the appendices. So I, I yes. do welcome welcome your mind on this show. So by all means, say what you want to say. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Okay. Right. Again, back on topic. Uh, I grew up as a Mormon, as I said. I'm also slightly autistic, as if anybody hasn't guessed. So I was very, very obsessive about it. Now, as a child, the first thing I noticed about Genesis was I was making this big time chart, well, a little time chart to fill it, fit in my Bible one day. Um, and I loved how you get the whole of human history in like 6,000 years. That, that, the neatness of that really appealed to me. And the first thing I noticed, this first coincidence was Adam began about 4,000 BC. And uh, that happened to be when the first cities began, well, the cities as we have them today. I've got to be careful because these words like cities and civilization. Uh, in a city, cities have been around forever. But what I mean is cities like we know them, you know, fairly large, uh, complicated things, there's hierarchies and lots of things going on. Um, and this all began about 4000 BC um, in, in the civilization of Sumer. Also, the word civilization I had problems with because to me, being civilized means it comes from the is it Latin or Greek civis, uh, which basically means uh, people. Latin. A lot of Latin comes from Greek, though. Oh, there we go. Yes. Yeah, it's about civilization, it's about getting on with people. Whereas polis is about cities. So most people think there was civilization began with cities. And I say, no, civilization began the first time we, we got on together and didn't try to kill each other. Um, and I think it's much, much older than 4000 BC. But for purposes of what we think of as civilization, it all began 4000 BC. What a great coincidence. Adam got the date right. Okay, so what coincidence? That's all I needed to know. Okay. Uh, as an adult, I became interested in things like prophecy, as you would do. You know, the second coming of Jesus, for example. Uh, so my church began in the 1830s, well, in fact, in the exact year 1830. And there was a guy called William Smith who wrote a Bible dictionary in 1817 or something, in which he predicted that 1830 was going to be the greatest year in the history of the world, because he thought that all these prophecies in Daniel pointed to 1830. Whereas uh, Willie and Miller, the famous Millerites, they thought 1844. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses thought 1878. Basically, if you look at all these crazy prophecies of the Second Coming, they're all over the shop, but they do tend to focus on the 1800s. You get more from the 1800s, uh, quite a few from the 1900s. This kind of period, you don't get an awful lot of them from around the year 1000 or you know, whatever, or, or 300. It gets some, but there seems to be a really cluster around about sort of, 1800, 1900, 2000. This is when people thought the prophecies pointed to. I mean, there's always some of the uh, the end of the world, you know, millinerism sort of thing 
going on in the background, right? It seems like, you know, every time someone looks into this, they somehow find out that it's going to happen in their lifetime, right? So about every yes. 70 years, you find someone doing the math to make it happen. But you're right, there are absolutely clusters of this, and there certainly was more in the, uh, especially the 19th century U.S. And I really appreciate them taking their apocalyptic cues from Daniel, because it's just so many people do Revelation, it's just played out, right? So I appreciate them going Old Testament with this. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. well, that was going to be my point. And ultimately, even the Revelation is very, very Jewish. And if you trace where the ideas came from, uh, it all comes from Enoch. And Enoch was being a very Jewish book. And so when they're talking about the second coming of Christ, they're actually meaning the Messiah. And you look into it, they're basically talking about the Messianic age. And the Messiah, it means in the Jewish sense, isn't the Messiah that the Christians meant. And they're thinking of people like you know, Cyrus and the Maccabees, humans who were going to get rid of the kings and give uh, power to the people. Of course, and that's that's a lot of the expectation. It even bleeds through in the New Testament. They're like, all right, when are you going to kick out the Romans, Jesus? Come on. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and looking back at that, what I find interesting is if, if you go to the Jewish version, yeah, you know, obviously it's not about Jesus, but it is about messiahs, you know, plural. I mean, sometimes it could be a messiah, and there's a lot of debate about this. But uh, it also, it's not a supernatural thing. Supernatural, that God is doing it. But you know, Cyrus was a king, and he wasn't. Uh, I mean, you've seen this with Donald Trump. They're admitting, okay, it's okay to have a Messiah-type figure who maybe isn't good and isn't Jesus and isn't one of us. It's just this general idea that the bad things are going to get better for the ordinary people. Anyway, what really interested me is it actually happened. And if you look at the history of the world, like sort of 10,000 years, 6,000 years, whatever, around the 1800s, it really was a real change of the whole world in terms of kicking out kings. You know, you've got the, the French Revolution, you've got the American Revolution and so on. And although there's a lot of problems... people saying yes... <laughs> yes, yes, well, quite. Yeah, I mean, the thing, things obviously, this idea of progress is, is an interesting one. It's not something I particularly believe in, but I, I think there is plenty of evidence that things did get better for the common man in the, in the 1900s in a big way globally. You know, I mean, not living as serfs anymore. Things are generally better in a lot of ways, or at least they were for, for a long time. And so, yeah, I mean, you can sorry. frown about it, but there's so many, you can frown about it, but there's so many different things that are just fundamentally better for the average person, right? We're, we're definitely living as the uh, the nobility were, you know, actually better than nobility in so many ways. Uh, you know, if you go back just a couple hundred years, uh, light years beyond, so. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that's our point. And especially if you go back thousands of years. So, you know, taking a big sort of prophetic view of thousands of years, it really is true that there's something very, very good for the common man in about 1800s and 1900s, relatively speaking. So that's my second big coincidence. You know, as a child, I noticed that Adam was at 4000 BC. As an adult, I realized these prophecies, they, they kind of came true. I mean, Jesus didn't come back, like the Christians are saying, but there was a messianic age in that you had common people sort of fighting against the kings and making life better. And again, this isn't a strong evidence, but it is, this is, I'm just saying where I came from, thinking this is kind of interesting. You know, it did sort of fit. It's nice, you know, it's not doesn't fit exactly the way my te church teaches, it doesn't really fit exactly the way every Christian church teaches, but it's it does sort of fit. So that, that that's where I'm coming from. Uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, I left my church because I'm a bit of an idealist and it basically wasn't up to the job. I hate to say this. <laughs> uh, and this is about the Mormons, but uh, I find they were scared of history. They were quite dogmatic. They kept backtracking on things. Basically just an immature religion. I think well, that's, that's, that's why I'm still Catholic, right? Then, you know, just generally believing it. But 
Catholics love history. So that was just, I'm lucky I got born there, right? Because I, I didn't have to make an awkward transition once I fell in love with history. I could just embrace the religion loving or the history loving side of Catholicism. Yeah, exactly. That, that's how I am. I mean, I, I love history. I just want to dig into it. It's really fascinating. I don't want somebody to come up to me and say, well, no, no, we don't believe that end of story. Okay, there's always a different way to look at it, though. I mean, that's the thing that this is a problem I have with a lot of scholarship because a lot of that's why I love storytellers. Storytellers can see 150 different ways to interpret a situation, and a lot of scholars can't. And, and they'll come up and they'll say, look, look at look at A and B, it must equal C. And I'm like, yeah, but it could also equal D, E, F, and G. Now, if you look at it this way, and they haven't. So, yeah, and I left Mormonism anyway. Um, yeah, and, and I suppose I should note, of course, you know. There are things like uh, the Inquisition, you know, famously tolerant of different views. Yes. So uh, Catholicism has not always been uh, as uh, open-minded as uh, oh, it yeah. has been, especially in the last hundred years. Absolutely. But again, that's, that's why the age is so important, because after a couple of thousand years, you've got enough of these problems and you've got to face them because all your enemies know about them. You can't go around saying it never happened. I mean, Mormons are still saying, no, nope, never happened. No, we didn't do anything wrong. Uh, complete nonsense. How dare you talk about it? Whereas the Catholics are like, yeah, OK, it happened. Okay, we'll deal with that. Again, it's a maturity thing. It's like you grow up and you, you're not this little kid anymore. He thinks he's the best person ever. You know, and right. puts his hand in the cookie yeah. jar and says, I, I didn't steal the cookies. Yeah, you did steal the cookies. You're an adult now. You know, you understand. So I like that. Oh, yes. So, then, sorry? Yeah, okay. So, again, my story. Uh, as a child, Adam was 4000 BC. The Messianic prophecies, they kind of came true in a sort of general sense. Um, and so most people, when they leave Mormonism, they become atheist. But I couldn't because I loved the Bible. And I, and I also was aware that there's so many different ways to be a believer. I say believer. I mean, even the concept of belief. I mean, one thing that really interested me is in the Old Testament, they didn't really believe anything. I mean, Moses didn't care what you believed. He only cared what you did. And, and most religion was about this. Religion was about your tribe. It was just about fitting in. You, know, that you, you want to be a good member of the tribe. What you believe about it doesn't really come into it. Or like the were uh, Romans, for example, you know, you believe anything you like, you know, as long as you sacrifice to, to, um, I was going to say to the Pope, <laughs> to the Emperor. <laughs> well, the later Romans, maybe not, not quite really, uh, but yes, yes, uh, to uh, the Emperor, yes. Yeah. So again, so, so the point is, I couldn't be an atheist because I realised what is an atheist? I mean, half, in fact, the majority of religions statistically are atheist anyway. You know, if you include like, every animist group, you know. Uh, you include yeah, Confucianism and various Buddhists and so on. And I mean, I grew up, you know, as my mum was Anglican before she joined the Mormon Church. And so I always keep an eye on the Anglican Church and the you know, high Anglicans aren't that different from Catholics. And then if you remember in the 1980s, it probably wouldn't, it was a British thing. There was a guy, the, um, oh, who was that? Anyway, there was a, a high Anglican guy who got, who was basically an atheist. It turns out that all the the Anglican leaders couldn't understand what the problem was because they were all basically atheists in that their idea of God was so abstract that the person on the street was thinking of a guy with a beard in, in the sky, whereas the people running the church, they were thinking of you know, abstract um, sort of meaning and I can't even describe it. So I've got these headphones and I'm hearing myself like, talk. Like a deism sort of thing? Yes, yeah, exactly, yes. Bishop of Durham, that was him. The Bishop of Durham, I mean, he, he famously talked about conjuring tricks with the bones to explain the resurrection. So it wasn't a big deal to him. So he didn't care whether Jesus physically came back because he sort of symbolically came back. He metaphorically came back. You know, and the average believer in the street was horrified by this. Uh, but the point is, what's the difference between an atheist and a believer? Well, when you get to the intellectual level, so anyway, I couldn't be an atheist. 
the funny thing with the Bishop of Durham is he was um, made a bishop in Durham, Durham Cathedral, York Minster, that's right, it's ancient church. And just after he was made a bishop, the church got struck by lightning and burnt down. <laughs> and everyone was like, Whoops. wow. That would get entered in a chronicle. Yes, yes, exactly. So that's, that's hilarious. It's the sort of thing you don't forget. But again, my, my point being, I left the church. Um, I didn't become an atheist. So I thought, it doesn't make any sense to you. What does it even mean? Um, and the Bible to me was fascinating. So I just carried on reading the Bible. I loved it as history. You know, the Adam 4000 BC got these prophecies kind of coming through. The next thing that really hit me was when I was reading about Noah's flood. You know, I said, about, talk about a time chart. I was trying to see how this time chart fit in with, with real history. Um, according to old Archbishop Usher, who I've got a lot of respect for. I mean, I know he wasn't a Catholic, but he trusted his Bible. He created this famous time chart, and he reckoned that Noah's flood worked out as 2348 BC. Now, as you know, when you when you don't when you're not so when you're a bit further away from your religion, you start reading the other sources. You think, okay, well, Noah was actually based on the Gilgamesh story, and the Gilgamesh story is all about ancient Sumer and the city of Sharapak. So, in according to Gilgamesh, which is older than the version of Genesis we have. Um, the Great Flood was actually a flood of the city of Sharapek. And if you look at when it actually happened, it took place in 2350 BC. So I'm like, that is a coincidence. You know, th this, the dates in the top of my Bible, 2348 BC, 2350 BC, I mean, archaeologists, they can't be closer within sort of 10, 20 years anyway. It's absolutely direct hit. That really hit me. And like, so you're thinking it's just like a cultural memory sort of thing. Well, no, a, a literal memory. I mean, Shirepek was a city, it was the number one city in Sumer, and it was flooded. And from the point of view of the guy we call Noah, it was you know, the whole world, because it was a very flat area. You know, you'd be floating along on your boat, and as far as the eye could see, you see nothing but water. And you certainly remember that. And there's huge cultural memory, because this led to the, the collapse of the civilization of Sumer, which to them was the only civilization they'd ever known. And this was the first civilization, the one that gave us cities and kings and writing and everything else. And it collapsed because of this flood. Uh, and that's when Sargon the Great from Akkad came and destroyed everything. So it really was the end of civilization you know, because of this flood. So I'm like, that's, that's amazing. Is, Sorry? Is, is there a Sargon character in this uh, in this kind of matching up? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's the Tower of Babel. Um, I'll definitely get to that. Yeah, everything matches up. The point is that the flood is the biggest event in, in history because it, it was the end of civilization, the first civilization that had ever existed. And it total disaster because they destroyed their capital city in a flood. And to them, it was the whole world. Now, in Genesis, it sounds like it's the whole world to us. So that makes no sense, the whole world. I mean, what is the whole world? In a hundred years time, if we've got uh, cities under the sea and we've got satellites, I mean, Jeff Bezos reckons we should all be living in satellites. Uh, so if that happened in, in 200 years of, say, a thousand years time, the whole world would mean all these satellites. And so Christians then will be saying the whole world is flooded. Therefore, it must have covered all the satellites. You know, and that's absolutely absurd. I think it's just as absurd to say the whole world. Because it, it didn't. If you were living in Sharapek, the whole world was Sharapek at about five miles around it. So that's, anyway, that's my third coincidence. They really got me into this. There's a date that actually matches up. Biggest event in the history of the world. It was the biggest event. It was the end of civilization. And the date's exactly what the date is in the Bible. I'm like, wow. Um, so, okay, so then they get to Enoch again. Uh, now, you know, I have to mention how the prophecy comes from the book of Enoch. Now, Enoch is basically the story of the invention of writing. 
again, I've got these headphones on. I'm sort of hearing myself all the time here. So if I sound a bit sort of odd, well, I am a bit odd. I do sound a bit odd. It's probably a good thing, actually, because it means I'm a bit more relaxed, believe it or not. I may mean, not sound relaxed. Yeah. I had plans to rec- no, read all this stuff. But, yeah, uh, and I've also started eating a little bit of cheese and crackers, just so you know, so there might be a slight munching. <laughs> no, that's fine. Okay. But again, first I'll be sure to not do it while talking. No, that's fine. So the first coincidence, Adam was 4000 BC, there's a hit. Second coincidence, his prophecies kind of came true, that's a hit. Third one is Noah's flood was the biggest event in the history of the world, in the genuine real history of the world, at the exact date it said. Again, that's a big hit. Uh, Enoch, it, it all ties up to the guy calls uh, Enmeridanki, uh, which means the, the lord of a power that links heaven and earth. So we, we could call him Enmerid Enoch, basically it's the same word. Uh, lived 3000 BC. That's when uh, writing was invented. And the invention of writing, it was this huge information technology which changed everything. And I'm like, that is interesting. You know, Enoch really was this really major character. It really did change everything. He really did go to heaven, as it were, because once you got writing, you, you can go anywhere. Your mind can go anywhere. You can travel anywhere. You can send messages anywhere. It's this information technology which just changed everything at 3000 BC. And ever since then, we've looked back to this moment. Yeah, so, and I suppose I, I should I suppose I should note um, for my listeners, I don't think I delved into the Book of Enoch too much um, because it's not canon in the Catholic Church, but it is, yeah. um, scholars will agree, um, very important for the formation of Scripture. And he is a character in the Bible, um, just not much, right? The only, uh, the only tidbit you just hit on was, uh, you know, him going up to heaven. Um, but, you know, based off of that, basically, it seems like there's, you know, all sorts of fan fiction from there um, equating uh, about half the size of the, you know, the entire Old Testament. So we're talking quite a massive tone. Um, yes. You know, just yeah. Enoch, Enoch and the uh, related literature. So that's what yeah. we're getting into here is uh, uh, what yeah. we would consider apocryphal books so outside the Bible, but uh, influential. Yes. And we'll see more of the apocryphal stuff as we dive into the New Testament. Yes, yes. Well, if you're an, uh, an Ethiopian, of course, you say, no, he is in the Bible, because the Ethiopian Bible is like twice as big as anyone else's Bible. Yeah. Yeah, yes, they're my favorite, as you know. Yes, good. Quite right. Yeah, I, I love it that they kept this up. But yeah, what you said is so important. Enoch was huge. It's like everything comes back to Enoch. It's like this explosion of, of just knowledge and the connection with the gods. And it keeps coming back to Enoch again and again and again. So many books, so many references. And again, it's to me, it's another big hit, because the invention of writing... I mean, you don't get bigger than the invention of writing. You know, we talk about the information technology mm. revolution oh, yeah. now, and they had the same thing back then. In fact, that was my fifth coincidence. Not only is Enoch really important, but the, the things that happened then, they're matching what happens now. And that they had this, they invented writing, they had, they had enormous economic growth, this led to massive inequality, and they had these people called the big men, i.e. people like, um, uh, what's his name, Gilgamesh, who called himself one third man and two thirds God. And he wrote this book, you know, mm. book people about him wrote this propaganda about the book of Gilgamesh about how strong and powerful and handsome he was and how he could always defeat anybody else and how the city of Uruk with its great walls and he was in charge of it. And you know, he could have sex with anybody he wanted, kill anybody he wanted, defeat anybody he wanted. These were the big men. And this is the era because and, of so much wealth. And he's humble too, although that's right. not an Assyrian virtue. So I guess he wasn't actually humble. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. But the thing is, these people were real. I mean, it wasn't just Gilgamesh. There was a guy called, uh, oh, God, there's, there's lots of them anyway. Just this period, about 500 years after the invented writing, with all the, with so much wealth, there's so many new ideas, and they're conquering everybody. You got this um, Naram Sin, he was the one, a very famous uh, early leader, 
who who's the first one to call himself a god? I mean, they all kind of call themselves a god. So they let it be known they're gods, but to actually say I am a god and to write it on all these statues, you know, because they were so arrogant. These people, because for the first time in history, these people could just march across the world and kill anybody and destroy anything because of the invention of writing and all the technology it produced. And I see so many parallels today. You remember in the Bible when um, um, what's his name Noah? says he's got 120 years for the people to repent. Okay, so that, that's interesting because that, that means you from 2350 BC, which is the flood, take away 120 years, you're basically 2500 BC, more or less. So 2500 BC is when the, the, the big men, the, the, the Bible calls them giants. I've got a friend who reckons they're genuine sort of physical giants. I don't see that at all. The Look Nephilim. at the other sources. I think, yeah, Nephilim, that's right. These are what they call the Lugals, you know, the big men, which just meant very, very, very powerful men who could do anything. And they disregarded all previous rules. So, so arrogant, so proud and so powerful. And these are the giants and these are the problems, as, as I see it. You know, if, if you take, take this as real history, and if you use the other sources. Uh, so it all matches up the current history. And you got 3000 BC, the invent writing. You then get huge economic growth. You get massive inequality. You get very, very proud, arrogant people. 500 years later, it becomes so bad, they say this is going to happen, so Noah says you've got 120 years, and they're all going to die. And then 120 years later, more or less, they do in this great flood. What happened in the flood was that the Lugals became so annoyed with the people who were complaining all the time, they just flooded the entire city. They say, look, we don't need you anymore, we're going to teach you a lesson you're not going to forget. Because back then, of course, everything was built on canals. Canals were the, the, the previous great technology. And uh, this is how they managed to have cities in the desert. And so all you needed to do is wait for the rainy season, break some of the dams, described this in Gilgamesh, break the dams, set fire to the houses, and you're all wiped out. And so that will teach them people a lesson. And, and uh, you, know, you can see the parallels today. 3000 BC to 2500 BC is under the big men uh, appeared. You had 120 years of chaos, and then they finally kill everybody, and that's the end of civilization, and they have to start again. And it, it matches up so well with the current, current world. In us, our information revolution was 1500 AD, uh, the, the printing press. Yes. And then you see this massive economic growth. And then you see this, these big men you've got today. I mean, the big men back then, they had these big ziggurats, these big towers, like the Tower of Abel, um, these great big towers in the middle of each city. And then you could climb up the tower, and that's how you'd meet your god. Because it was to reach God at the top of the tower, the king would be there and with his people and his ministers. And this is a tower to, to reach heaven. And today we have literal rocket ships, which are the same shape as these towers. People like uh, uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are building literal <laughs> rocket ships to go into heaven because they've got so much money. I mean, Elon Musk, he wants to be the gatekeeper to the literal universe. You know, if you want to go into, into heaven, you basically pay him because he's got the cheapest rockets and he wants to have a base on Mars. And he, he literally wants to be the ruler of the universe. I mean, right. You know, and, and insert joke here about the shape of uh, Jeff Bezos's particular rocket ship. Oh, yes. I say it's so simple when you look at it. It's like Not you, so. can't, you can't make it up. You really can't. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mentioned about Gilgamesh. He was very proud of the fact that he could have sex with any woman he wanted in his entire city. And his city didn't like him. You know, these are not nice people. But the parallels, you know, what they're doing now is exactly the same as they did back then. But more so back then, they just had towers to go to heaven. Now they have literal rocket ships to go to heaven. The big men today who are just above the law and they control the laws. You know, if you're Jeff Bezos and you want a particular law passed, you know, you can have it passed. Uh, the parallels were just phenomenal to me. It took 500 years, takes 500 years today. I'm like, 
because this was the Book of Enoch said. The Book of Enoch called itself a parable. It didn't claim to be you know, a literal history. This is, you know, Enoch literally went to heaven. It, it says this is a parable, and this is what happens. And these, at the end, this is a big disagreement I have with a lot of the scholars. They say, well, the supernatural Messiah traces to Enoch. I'm saying he was not supernatural. It was a parable. It says at the end of the Book of Enoch, after he's seen all these terrible things happening, that God says to Enoch, "You are the Messiah." Or rather, the common man is the Messiah. This, you know, I think the um, the common man, the, the phrase he used to use, the son of man, that's right, which now we take as being the son of man, Jesus. He just meant the common man. And he's saying the son of man, the common man, is the Messiah. You are the ones who are going to change the world. You've got to fix this and defeat these big, powerful people. I just see so many par parallels. And it's not a supernatural idea. It actually happened. You actually got these big men running rampant over the world because they rejected all the, the humility and the things that they'd learned in the past. They rejected the old religion. And it's happening again now. It's just similar. And you know, the time frame is the same. So when Enoch says, I mean, the whole point of the book of Enoch is he's saying the last days are going to be like the days of, of Noah. You're going to have this information revolution. You're going to have these big men in this economic growth. You're going to have this arrogance. And then you're going to have it all fall mm -hmm. down. And you're saying the last days are going to be just the same. And it's not a supernatural thing. It's an observational thing. It's like this actually happened before with real people and, and it's happened again. I'm like, this is really, really interesting. Yeah. Could it be that all these prophecies aren't, I mean, a lot of them are just madmen who just you know, drunk too much, you know, having voices in their head. <laughs> but, but, but the best ones are actual observations of how things actually work in the real world. You get an information revolution, you get that causes all kinds of chaos, you get a lot of arrogance and it all goes horribly wrong. And it takes the same sort of time, about 500 years. So that, that really hit me. I'm like, this, this is a very sensible, logical, rational book here. It's a parable, sure, but that's how you remember it. Comes back to why I like the idea of teaching Genesis. Um, parables matter because history is so complicated. You've got to simplify it. No one's going to remember it otherwise. If you don't remember it, you, you're stuck. The average person in the street has to remember this stuff. And so your sort of Genesis version, if it means they believe the flood was the whole world, well, fine, that's not a big problem. They've got to remember there was a flood. They've got to remember it was caused by arrogance. They've got to remember that it started with someone like Enoch and they suddenly had these new discoveries and everything changed. We've got to remember this stuff and people remember it because of Genesis and they don't remember it if they don't read Genesis. So that really had a big effect on me. How are we doing for time? Because I, I tend to... Go oh, you're fine. Oh, good, good, good. Okay. Yeah. I see information revolution. I mentioned the information revolution. The more I looked at it, it turns out this happens every two and a half thousand years. In 10,500 BC, uh, you've heard of Dunbar's number, the 150. That's the number of people. Big, yeah. yeah. Dunbar's number is the number of people the average person can have a stable relationship with. You, mm. If you've got 150 friends, you can pretty much know what they're all doing, what they're like, what their parents are like, their habits, and so on. You get more than 150 so, friends. Funny story on that. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, my my uh, my first uh, college that I went to wasn't actually a fully accredited college yet, but they are now. So uh, shout out to the uh, College of Our Lady in uh, Barry's Bay, Ontario. Uh, anyways, uh, they intentionally, you know, at least at the time, and I think they've kept with this, they actually basically based their enrollment size on that. It was by design a small college because they didn't want to have more than, you know, like 120 odd folks uh, yeah. because they wanted to have a community. Yeah, perfect. That's a perfect example. Yeah, that's wonderful. We're saying 120, 150. I mean, I'm slightly autistic, but my Dunbar's number is about two or one, really. You know, I've got a friend, <laughs> and that's all the friends I need. And any more friends than that gets very complicated to me. But I gather that most people like a, bit, a few more friends than that. Yeah, but anyway, 10,500 BC, that's when they first find bread in the Levant. 
And to cut a very long story short, because this is really interesting, that, meant, that pinpoints the moment we had tribes of greater than 150 people, when we suddenly didn't know what everybody right. was doing. And that's a massive change. You started to cut out, I think. Oh, no. We got Brendan Lamont, and then I started uh, just doing little bits. <gasps> oh, no, this is terrible. It's probably my end. Is it any better now? Hello, I'll keep talking. I'll just keep rambling on saying nothing in particular. You're sounding very, very silent to me. Chris, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. I, I can hear you perfectly. Can you hear me? Uh-oh. What have I done? Have I done something? I don't think I've fixed anything. All Isn't right. Can you hear me now? Again? Yes, I can hear you. I can hear you. Can you hear me? All right. Do, do, do. Okay, so stop recording. Right, so I'm still recording. Um, so end the call. So I'm still on the call. I can hear you. Um, uh -huh. I'm just going to keep rambling and chatting so that if you can okay. hear me. Okay. Oh. Uh, hello. 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 Can I you can, hear me? I can hear you now. Yes. Oh, here. That's a very good sign. Um, yes, I can hear you, but it doesn't sound like you can hear me. Can you hear oh, me? I can hear you. I, I'm on, oh, I can hear you. I, okay. I think I can hear you all the way through. Right. I'm probably just ignoring oh, okay. you. That's probably well, that's interesting. <laughs> 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 no, I, 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 uh, yeah, I, I got. We were talking about Dunbar's number, and then I lost you. Okay. Well, well, briefly, so, I just go back a couple minutes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, done by time. 150 people. We can keep uh, somebody who's fairly sociable can keep track of up to 150 people, and so that's how big our our communities were until 10,500 BC. The point I'm making is 10,500 BC was a huge change. It's when your communities began bigger. It just changed everything about how we thought about people, how we experienced life, and what we could do. And another great bigger change was 8,000 BC, the Great Wall of Jericho which was a, this massive shock and awe wall, which was the biggest building in the world for 5,000 years until the pyramids. It was just like nothing else had seen on Earth. So that's the Great Wall of Jericho. I mean, when Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, it matters because Jericho was the beginning of everything in terms of buildings. So that was a huge change, 2,500 years after our, our tribes increased in size. 2,500 years after that was 5,500 BC. That's when the city of Eridu started building these big canals in the desert. And when people realized they could become gods because previously you're entirely dependent on whatever nature gave you. And suddenly when you could build a canal and, and irrigate the desert, that you could create nature. It was like this massive change in how people experienced the world and the civilization and so on. Uh, two and a half thousand years of that is 3000 BC is writing. I mentioned that. Two and a half thousand years after that was the invention of coinage, uh, which again totally changed our relationships with each other. Because once you've got coins, you can do things by money instead of just by relationships. You can say, okay, I'm going to do this and you're going to give this exact amount of money. And that's the end of our relationship. But again, that's a, I cannot overstate how important coins have been to the history of how we experience each other and in society. Uh, it, was, it was very much equivalent of writing and canals and the Great Wall. And of course, two and a half thousand years after that, we've got computers. It's just really interesting that you get these two and a half thousand year cycle of these massive information revolutions that just change how we experience the whole of the, wor the world. And these things have, then have repercussions of centuries and centuries and thousands of years later. So again, that interests me because Enoch was just one of these. Uh, and this whole point of patterns, because all these prophecies, all the good prophecies, the prophecies that actually come true, are all based on these patterns. Um, within the two and a half thousand year cycle, there's like a 500 year cycle, well, 490 years. Daniel talks about it a lot, that's 10 jubilees. So they've got a 50 year jubilee, they've got your 
490 years, sort of 10 jubilees, and then you've got this 2,500 year cycle, and then you've got the 12,000 year cycle, which is a whole other topic. And my point being that good prophecies aren't magic. I, they seem to be based on real processes that happen in the real world, because things just sort of do take time to work through. It, it's a good job I'm not on video. You see me wave my arms around trying to extrapolate what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so, yeah, to me, see, the Bible is not a supernatural book at all. It's supernatural. It's just a way to simplify what is incredibly complicated. And so it's very, very, it's the natural, sensible thing to do. I mean, for example, people back then had larger brains than we do. We tend to, don't tend to talk about that. It's embarrassing. Brain size peaked around 30,000 BC and it's been shrinking ever since. So, uh, I mean, this is probably, if there's one message I want to get across about why I like Genesis, it's the people in the past were not dumb. A lot of them were. A lot of them were just as dumb as people today, you know, on average. But just like today, you get a few people who were really, they were really, really good. And that's always been the case. So the idea of them noticing these 500 year cycles and two and a half thousand year cycles, and they're making predictions, such as in the Book of Enoch, that it's going to be the same again. You know, if you have another information revolution, it's probably going to happen two and a half thousand years later. And it's going to have this sort of 500 years to work its way through. And then you're going to have sort of an end of civilization situation and so on. These are rational conclusions, I think. You don't have to believe this is supernatural. You don't have to believe this is based on some guy magically waking up at night and, and having a vision. And these things happen anyway. But what I'm interested in is the, his, the patterns of history. It just sounds rational. Um, anyway, so I mentioned scholar. Better get about, about scholarship because what I'm saying is really against what the scholars say. The scholars generally say that it's, it's, it's not reliable. It's not accurate history. It's not precise. These prophecies aren't correct. Um, the, the phrase that comes to mind for me is you're, you're taking it seriously by not taking it literally, right? But you yes. are taking it seriously. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I'm saying literally, though, this is another thing that bugs me. People say they take the Bible literally. No, what they mean is they're taking a particular interpretation of the Bible, yeah, like, like with uh, Noah's flood. What does global mean? I mean, I take it literally. I think it was literally a global flood. But to them, the literal globe was you know, five miles around their village. That's what they knew. Today, our literal globe is you know, 24,000 miles. You know, in a thousand years time, if Jeff Bezos gets his way, our idea of a globe will be probably 100,000 miles. There'll be satellites around the world. That's where we'll all be living. And I'd say it is literal, but it's literal by, based on how we experience the world at the time. I don't like how your evangelicals have hijacked it and said, here's only one way of looking at it, and this is the literal way. I'm like, no, that's, words mean different things. I mean, for example, God, Elohim, plural. God is literally plural. Whereas the people who take it literally say, no, no, he's literally singular. Well, they're both literally true. <laughs> and, uh, so I think mythology is great. Mythology allows for different interpretations because there's so many ways of looking at things. And I think this is comes down to brain size. Um, remember now, uh, my youngest daughter, when I can't remember the situation now, but she asked me if she could do something. And I said, it's up to you. She said, yes, but can I do it? Because she wanted me to make the decision for her because she did not have the experience to say, OK, I can do it. I might not do it. It's, it's kind of fuzzy. It's complicated. It's, you, know, you can't do that when you're five years old. And I think that's the problem we've got now. I think back in the past, I think we were much better at ambiguity. We're much better at you know, mythology not being literally true, but it is literally true. You know, it did happen. And we weren't so bothered with the details. Um, Karen, is it Karen Armstrong or the history of God? She, she writes about this, about how in the past they, they weren't so literal about stuff in the way we are today because they could handle the ambiguity. And today we're no, really not good at ambiguity. 
I think that's a result of the information revolution. We've got so much information. We, we need facts. So we need something to anchor ourselves on. Because personal experience doesn't work anymore. We, we've got so many experiences. We don't know which ones to trust. So today we're very, we're very literal. We're very black and white. Whereas I think in the past they weren't. I think they were very, very happy with the fuzziness of life. I think real life is fuzzy. And today we're trying to pretend that there's only one way of seeing things. And I think that's a huge mistake. But what can you do if life is complicated? You've got to simplify it somehow. Uh, anyway, yeah, back, back to scholars. Uh, 1500, invented printing, which then led to the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation, you know, and people publishing the Bible and arguing about what it meant to have all these wars. You also had a lot of princes who, who saw a great opportunity in Germany in particular because of the way it was set up. You had lots of competing princes getting great power. And so then you had this invention of um, this sort of secularism. And the secular princes, they, they needed to get rid of the Bible, basically, because it was a problem. The, the common people were likely to fight each other over these issues. And the point I want to make also is it wasn't a crazy idea to fight each other over the Bible, because these are real serious issues. For example, in the Catholic Church, you centralized, more or less. You have one pope, whereas the Protestants are not centralized. This is a real political issue. Should we have a centralized society or should it be decentralized? These are real issues and they're serious things. I'm not saying we should fight over them. I think we should discuss them. But this idea that these wars of religion were just sort of stupid people arguing over stupid things like in Monty Python. I mean, maybe some of them were. But I think underneath these were real issues and the invention of printing just brought them to the fore. Anyway, the princes didn't like this. They needed to control this. But they didn't want to just sit down and work it out. Because if you actually look at the Bible and try and make sense of it, it's very easy to come to the conclusion that the big men, the, the powerful people, are generally not good people. And this is a very dangerous idea. I mean, your typical atheist just reads the Bible and says, look, anybody who's going to cause a global flood cannot be a good person. But whatever God it was, cannot be good by definition. It has to be an axiom. And that's a really dangerous idea. You get the Gnostics teaching the same thing with the, the Demiurge, saying the way they read the Bible, it's obvious there's, got some, there's a good God, obviously, at some point up high, far away, there is logic and reason. So things have to make sense. There is a good God up there, but whoever it is made this enslaved Adam and killed the people in the flood. They're obviously some sort of demiurge or some kind of workers just doing their best. And this They've is a very, very dangerous idea. <laughs> Sorry? The oh, you local God has gone off. Yes. Yeah. That's right. And, and that's the danger. And the Gnostics, remember, Gnostics just meant uh, the, the knowledgeable ones. They were the ones who really studied the scriptures. And you see this again and again. And the Cathars, for example, in the 13th, 14th century, again, you study the scriptures, you tend to get this impression some of these rulers were not good. And that's a very dangerous thing. So when you had the Reformation and so on, the princes who were trying to get power and trying to secularize everything, they didn't want people to just argue it out from the Bible because that very often didn't end well for them. So what they did was, they decided that the Bible should be kind of suppressed a little bit. Uh, if you ever read the book, uh, a recent book called uh, Before Religion, the Hist A History of a Modern Concept by Brent Nongabri, I think it's his name. It's about, how okay, it's about how our modern idea of religion as, as a private belief is a, is a very recent idea. And it's invented specifically oh, yes. in the 1700s in order to stop people fighting each other over religion. Said, okay, it's fine so now. The, the funniest part to that with that to me is that you know, just the way I was raised in my cultural background, like I still don't fundamentally, honestly, think of religion as a private belief. Like, yes, I understand that that's generally the expectation of the culture, but like that's not personally something that I've absorbed or something that I was raised with. So to hear people 
sort of explain that, oh, you know, that's this is the way people used to think. I'm like, well, I, I've always thought the way people used to think, but I guess that was just the whole being raised as a Catholic, which is, I guess, the tie-in for this uh, commentary. Yes, perfect. Exactly. And this is a fantastic example of what I mean. The Catholics, they remember what real religion was because you've been around for 2,000 years and you know that a private belief doesn't make any sense. But, and this is a new invention, I guess this is a perfect illustration of what I mean. It's why I have a lot of respect for Catholics, because you've been around long enough, you've got the experience. Because to me, religion is just experience. This is just the experience of a tribe. And some, some of these patterns and things that you work out in history, they do take centuries. Sometimes they take thousands of years to work out. And so you need an organization that's been around long enough to remember how it used to be. And the Catholic Church, I think 2,000 years is probably the, the, the minimum you should accept a church. If you've got a church which is less than 2,000 years old, it hasn't quite worked out the bugs yet. It's like having the beta version of something. You know, you have your, your religion 1.0 takes about 2,000 years of testing. So you know, you've got the idea that right, religion was not a private belief, but he invented the idea of religion as a private belief in order to stop people fighting each other and in order to stop them debating the stuff they didn't want to debate. Uh, and so this is the 1700s. This is when you see the, the creation of Bible scholarship as we know it today. I mentioned the Centre Conference was in Germany. Uh, 1763, they had a started a policy of an enlightened absolutism. Basically, they decided that their princes could be absolute dictators as long as they were enlightened, as long as they could be all logical and weren't based on the Bible. This is a huge change. Now, at that time, there was a scholar called David McKellis who happened to write a book called The Compendium of Dogmatic, in which he, he looked, went through the Bible and he said that Moses was a great guy, but the Old Testament is not really relevant to modern life. Now, the new princes, they loved that because that's exactly the message they had. Yes, we love this religion. We're all pro-religion. We think religion is wonderful. Just, just keep it to yourself. You know, don't, don't, don't look at what Moses said. I mean, Moses, sorry, I talk about tangents. I've got to put this in because it really bugs me. The Ten Commandments. <laughs> no one ever talks about the Eleventh Commandment. If you look at, Gen at Exodus chapter uh, 20, after he's spoken about the Ten Commandments, he then says, don't have any temples. He says, I mean, he shows this had a sense of humor. He says, uh, do not put your stones on top of another, because when you climb the stones, you can see the, the priest's backside, because people didn't wear underwear back then. <laughs> so the priest would be climbing up these steps. You'd be watching him, and you see his, his backside through his cloak, uh, because you're underneath him. And I'd, I'd love that. This is absolutely central to Moses' teaching. You should not have a big temple. You're supposed to have your local shrine. It has to be local. <laughs> And people didn't like that because, you know, obviously, if you want power, you want a big temple, you want a big church. To, and this is a huge thing in the Old Testament. Let's change the story so you could have a temple. And that's the point. If you start studying this stuff, you realize it's incredibly relevant. It's all about power. It's all about how do you run a society where the individual has power. And again, I better not even get started on this. I love Moses. And I think Moses is extremely relevant. But anyway, David Michelle said he wasn't. And that's the message which the princes wanted. Now, the King of Sweden even gave David Michelis uh, a medal. He was so impressed with what, what he'd written. Now, but the local people hated it because they said, no, no, the Old Testament is relevant. But no, no, the princes did not want it to be too relevant because if you start looking, you realise it's kind of, it doesn't say nice things about powerful people. Now, um, most people haven't heard of David Michelis, but they have heard of his very, very, well, most scholars have heard of his very famous student, a guy called um, Johann Eichhorn. Now, Johann Eichhorn is the, the father of Bible scholarship. He went even further. He basically argued that the whole Bible isn't really what you think it is. It's not really reliable. It's a wonderful, interesting book. And that's the message we have today. Fantastic, studious thing, but it's not really reliable. And again, this is exactly what the, the princes wanted to hear. You can have your nice little religions. You can believe whatever you like. And you can be a thousand different religions in our state. 
just yeah, don't take it too seriously, please. It's not history. <laughs> Johan Eichel, he invented this thing called the documentary hypothesis. You remember you, you did your Genesis episode. You're speaking about there being two different creation stories. Now, oh, yes. that, is, that is solid scholarship in that all the scholars will agree with you. But if you get this crazy guy called Chris Tolworthy on your podcast, he'll say, I disagree. <laughs> and this is why I disagree. I just, if anyone doesn't remember, in Genesis 1, you've got Adam being created in the image of God. And he has dominion over the world. But in Genesis 2, you have Adam created from the dust to be a servant. Now, these are obviously two different things. You know, you can't be in the image of God and having dominion over the world and also be created from the dust and being a servant. You know, these things are not like each other. So, uh, Johan Eichhorn says, well, it must have been two different stories mashed into one, which sort of makes sense. But several, and this is a very popular idea, because they could undermine the Bible so that the kings didn't have so much opposition from people fighting each other. And it also makes the scholars look clever. It's like a make-work uh, policy for scholars. <laughs> because once you can start dividing the Bible up into its saying, well, this puts two different stories. You can then divide it again. You get your J source, you can get your E source, you can have your D source, you can have your P source, you can have your Q source. And you can, hundreds of years they've been making a living off this and discovering amazing things about the Bible, making themselves look very good, and also becoming the gatekeepers to history because you've got to go to the scholars to find out what it means. So this is extremely popular with scholars. They look clever, it keeps them in work and they control history. It's popular with the kings because it keeps all the religious people down. Very, very popular idea. But this two, two creation story, it always bugs me for several reasons. First, because my experience of ancient people, or from what I've read, they're not stupid. I mean, if you've ever read any of the Roman texts, like Cicero, for example, or, or Philo, or, um, or obviously Plato, um, and my favourite is, is uh, Pythagoras. I didn't actually write anything, but their ideas were tremendous. These people were not stupid. I, I cannot really seriously see these people shoving two creation stories together and not noticing that they're different and not being worried about it. That's like, oh, oh, yes, they, they definitely know, knew what they were doing with that, yeah. yes. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm saying that. I don't, be, I don't want to be dogmatic about that. There could be reasons for this that I don't understand. I'm just saying that's the first thing that bugs me. Why would they do this? The second thing that bugs me was the way Adam is just the name for mankind. In the Hebrew, you see the word Adam all through the Old Testament. It just means man. So the fact they created man as a, a ruler and then they created man as a servant. I don't see that as necessarily a contradiction. And the third thing, a real clincher for me, and again, I'm, this isn't the proof, they're going to get to the proof in a minute, is that if you look at history, this is what happens. Whenever you have civilization starting, you start off with the people who start the civilization, and then they want servants. I mean, it's the bosses and workers thing. If you start a business, you start it on your own, you don't hire people. So you always get the, the, the bosses in the image of God, and then you get the servants who are to, to dig your ditches and look after your garden of Eden or whatever. It's just the natural way things work. So I didn't see a problem with Genesis 1 and 2 because they, they're, they're two Adams, they're two people. Adam just meant people. Yeah, I mean, there may well have been a particular person called Adam, but this is like 6,000, well, actually, I think that was 10,000 years ago. Uh, so yeah, do we really remember the exact names? Probably not, but it could be, it could be. This is also very common, though, throughout the... Um, you mentioned in the end of your podcast about uh, Jacob and Israel. So you're calling Jacob because when it's Israel, you're thinking of the group. Well, that's crucial <laughs> because we make the distinction now, especially since 500 BC. And this is the thing about, I mentioned how coins changed everything. It was the invention of coinage which created the invention of the soul. And that's the whole topic. It's, it's utterly fascinating. They didn't have this idea of the soul before that. They didn't have this idea of individualism. Um, so it wasn't a big deal for them that um, you had... Uh, 
Jacob becoming Israel. Israel was a person. Israel was also his descendants, the people. And Israel was also the place that lived. That didn't bother them in the slightest. That's just, let's say, they were happy with this ambiguity because it didn't make a lot of difference. Israel was a person. Israel's also a group. Israel's also the place. Similarly, Adam. Adam could have been a person. Adam was definitely a group. Adam could even be the people of Adam. Maybe they call Earth Adam. I don't know. It wasn't a problem back then. Um, anyway, I mentioned proof of this. This isn't a proof. This is just why I thought I don't. I don't see the argument for this hypothesis. However, if you go back to what I was saying about the Gnostics and about the Demiurge, this is a, a very, very serious problem for the rulers because they were saying how rulers were bad, and you know, the rulers don't like that message. And so this idea of having a, a top god and a lower god and then the people is always the way it is in history. Look through all the ancient texts. It's always the higher gods, which are basically nature. You've got your sky, you've got the, you know, the, the, the night, the dark, the up and down, these basic concepts. You then have the lower gods, which the way they're talking, obviously people, which are rulers, like, like Gilgamesh, you know, two thirds god, one third man. And then you have your ordinary people. There's always this three stage thing. And it's very dangerous for rulers because it makes them question the rulers saying, well, sometimes rulers can be wrong. These people call themselves gods and say to represent the god, they can be wrong, and that's dangerous. And so throughout the last 2,000 years, they've always argued the rulers are, there's only one Adam. There's one Adam, there's one god, the god is always right. Your rulers should never be questioned as long as they represent god and they tell you what god says, so who are you to argue? So this idea of one Adam is very, very strong. I'm defending Eichhorn here. I'm saying I, I, uh, Johann Eichhorn wasn't an idiot. He was trying to make sense of this idea. He'd been taught there could only be one Adam. And therefore, if there is only one Adam, then obviously Genesis 1 and 2 must be separate stories. So it was kind of logical. But I'm saying, no, Adam, there's lots of Adams. Adam is just mankind. Just replace that with mankind and it all makes sense. But the disaster, the real problem was he had this theory of these lost uh, sources. It's called the documentary hypothesis because he had a hypothesis that there were these documents called the J source, anything that talks about Yahweh. The E source is anything that talks about Elohim. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 were different sources. And they reckon these sources must have existed sometime and been lost. But the disaster was they actually found the original sources. If you, in the 1800s and 1900s, and particularly in the 20th century, when they all brought it together, it became really obvious and you got the better quality copies and anybody had access to these things. They discovered Gilgamesh. I, I love that the them. idea that they found what they were looking for was a disaster. Yes, it was. Gilgamesh, Atrahasis, the Enuma Elish, for example, all these documents, and you can see where Genesis came from. We have the source documents for Genesis. I mean, we don't have every single one, but we have enough. They're all very, very consistent. They're all telling the same story. Atrahasis is probably the best example here, because there it's very clear about how the gods were created. So first you had the sky gods, like Anu, who was a sky, um, who was a sea, uh, Enki, that's, Enki was water. He's kind of, he actually became Yahweh, but that's, again, that's another topic. Um, you have this, just like today, you've got science, which is every science, like biology, for example, is the science of the bios, of, of squishy things. Um, <laughs> and so that, that is the, the god of squishy things is the ology of squishy things. We call them ologies, they call them gods, it's the same thing. So you have the, the top layer gods, which is science and stuff out there. Then you had the people who claimed to represent God, like the God of your city. For example, Marduk was the big one because he was the God of Babylon. He said that, that Babylon is such a powerful city, it can now run roughshod over the whole world. And so the symbol of this the city is Marduk, and I am the priest of Marduk, and you better do what I say because I represent Marduk. So you had these two levels of gods, the senior gods and junior gods. But the Atrahasis epic, who talked about the creation, the junior gods had to dig the ditches, and they didn't like it, and they were complaining. Remember, I said about Eridu was was such a huge change to the world because it was the first city that was irrigated the desert, and so suddenly they could create land out of nowhere. 
they could create life where there was no life before. It was huge, huge change to how people experienced the world and, and enabled enormous expansion, which is why Mesopotamia sort of then conquered the world, kind of. Uh, anyway, after Hades, the point is, they have the two levels of creation there. You have the original gods who are always there, they're always right. You then have the junior gods who are always complaining, who don't like digging ditches. And so they then say, right, we want to create some slaves. So, and so they create a slave class and they do the ditches for them. And that's how man was created. It's basically, there's the Garden of Eden story there. There we have, you have man created as gods, and then you have another set of mankind created as servants. So it's right there. So it's the opposite of what, I mean, Abraham Icon, Abraham, he called him Abraham for some reason. I think I know somebody called Abraham as well. Johan Icon, who created the, the documentary hypothesis, he was rational if you start off with the assumption there's one Adam. And so he had this hypothesis of being two separate sources. But then they found the sources, and it was just like Genesis said. It was just a two-stage thing. You first have the bosses, then you have the workers. The bosses say they represent God. The workers just do what they're told. So he's proven wrong. I mean, it was, it's, this is how science is supposed to work. You test your hypothesis. He had a hypothesis. They discovered the, the original document. Hypothesis completely wrong. Genesis turned out to be basically right. So what did they do? Well, this is why it becomes such a fiasco. They then said, no, I don't care. I'm sticking with my hypothesis. Because they had a problem then. For 200 years, the scholars have been the gatekeepers to history. They're being presented as these people making huge progress. And we know so much more than we used to know before. And they were so clever. And look at the details. We know Greek and we know Hebrew. And we know every little detail of this thing. Isn't this amazing? Aren't we wonderful? And now we discover that they were completely wrong. Their foundations on which they've written hundreds and thousands of books. Everything they said had been nonsense. They'd be pushing us the wrong direction. They'd be, we'd be learning less thanks to listening to the scholars. Now, of course, the scholar cannot accept that because that, he's undermined his whole... It's like a king admitting that he killed everybody and was an idiot. A king cannot accept that. Like a politician. A politician... I mean, I live in Britain. I don't know if you've been following British politics. The Conservative Party has been... Oh, it's been an absolute mess. But they cannot admit it. If the, top of the, if the leader of the Conservative Party stands up and says, you know what, you're right, we crushed the economy, we've got the, the worst recession since the Napoleonic Wars, everything is horrible, we've got literal poo in the water... We just it's garbage and we did it all. I'm sorry. He can never say that because that's it. He's over then. It's not just that he's a liar, but he's he's selected for that. He genuinely believes it, what he's doing is good. He wouldn't have got to his position he did if he was good. I'm not saying any scholars are liars. I'm saying you wouldn't get to the position you're in unless you genuinely believe this stuff. So when the original documents come in and they say, sorry, your entire theory has been wrong for 200 years, you cannot accept that. You say, and now I understand this. I used to be a Mormon. I mean, I spent 35 years presenting evidence that Mormonism was 100% the greatest thing on earth. I had a thousand page website proving that Mormonism was true. I wrote a, a book about the, the top 300 evidences of the Book of Mormon. Each one of them I thought was absolutely rock solid. I was so proud of myself. And it's, it's really, really humbling to realize that you can totally believe it and have loads of evidence and still be wrong. And I think this is why again, I think- You're, you're, you're right this time though, right, Chris? Oh, absolutely, yes. You're right this time though, right, Chris? Yes. Exactly, of course. Yes, yes, yes. There's an idea, there's an idea that basically talks about, you know, sort of a, a foundational belief, right? It's whatever you hang your hat on and you build from there, right? Because you got to start somewhere, philosophically, right? Like, you know, Descartes famously, you know, his search was looking for that thing to hang his hat on, it's that foundational yes. idea. And so when that shifts, um, it's traumatic, right? You, you want to give up everything but that foundational idea if you could possibly avoid it because there is a trauma to shifting that. So they're just, they're willing to do a whole lot of things in order to keep going with what they have because everything they've built hinges on that. Yes. Um, yes. It's, I guess, what you're saying. A hundred percent, yes. 
and, and it's rational. You know, when I was a Mormon, it, it wasn't just because I was difficult. I couldn't think of another idea. It's because I knew if I rejected that, I'd lose my family. I'd lose my, my wife. I'd lose my kids. Uh, luckily, being in Britain, I wouldn't lose my sort of culture because Mormons are a small minority here. But it's a genuine, logical, rational thing. It really does hurt you. If you totally change everything, you're going to lose your friends, your family, you often lose your career. You lose everything you thought was right. You, suddenly, decisions you, that you're making, you realize are suddenly not reliable anymore. It's, it can affect your health. You know, it's a horrible thing. If Once you lose that foundation, it, it's a rational thing to cling on to as much as you can because there's so much to lose. And again, it comes back to the Catholics again. I got the respect there because... You know, Again, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I, get, I, get, I understand that Catholicism is not just the scripture, it's also tradition. You understand tradition is real. You understand things do change. And, but, but you also don't lose the original stuff. He's still there. He's suddenly going to be very quiet. Yeah. Oh, good. That's good. That's fine. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, this is a situation scholars are in. Um, they are hired because they passionately believe in this stuff. They've got hundreds of years. Uh, giving them status and explaining the world and making sense of things and progress. And I'm basically, what I'm saying is that the whole idea of long-term progress doesn't happen. And I, I mean, our, progress is our religion. Since the 1600s, our religion has been our belief in progress. We are getting better and better. We might have problems, or we, which is kind of funny because that's a Christian idea. You know, uh, well, it's actually a Zoroastrian yeah. idea, <laughs> and which actually comes from money. I mean, it's, it all ties together. But atheists and, and progressives and so on, they are very Christian in that they do believe in great men and these chosen people, you know, very clever people who can make the world better. And the world will is on a constant upward slide. And, you know, although we might have occasional dip, we are, we are going towards a promised land and we'll have a future and we'll maybe even conquer death eventually. It's a very Christian idea. And I'm coming along saying, no, sorry, you're wrong. The ancients are actually right. Genesis was actually pretty correct. Uh, your, your little parish priest who's been teaching people about Adam and Eve and uh, all this stuff, he was right. You know, how can you accept that? So, yeah, but that's where I'm coming from. I mean, I'm not saying that scholars are stupid. I mean, I can rely on them, but I'm saying that they're no cleverer than the people in the past and their conclusions are no cleverer. Although we do have information they didn't have, they have information we don't have. This information comes in different forms. Um, something I often like to point out is we think we're so scientific now, but the most important science is sociology. Sociology controls all other sciences. And that's what they had in the past. They had superior science to us because they had superior sociology. I'm talking about 10,000 years BC, when we had groups of 150 people where we can actually understand what was going on. And since then, I think it's all gone to pot. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I am quite happy with disagreeing with Johan Eichhorn and his people. Um, and I could be wrong. Yes, I could just very easily, but I'm one guy. On <laughs> My goodness. I, think that's, I don't think I need to point that out. You know, No one's going to lose anything by disagreeing with me. If you disagree with scholars, you might have something to lose. You, know, you look like an idiot. You can't get a job in scholarship um, and so on. You know, and you're going to get disagreed with based on all these books. No one's going to have any problems disagreeing with me. So I feel I'm fairly safe just giving my opinions. I'll shout out on the podcast. I'll disappear. <laughs> end of that. But yeah. Well, and, yeah. And, you, and, you, and you have been very easy to work with just chatting with this process because you do have that uh, a certain degree of humility, right? I don't want to talk your humility up too much or else you'll just start denying it because that's how that works. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing Mormonism gave me. Mormonism has been fantastic. You know, when you really realize when you're so convinced. I mean, I, I was a missionary for two years. I ran my local branch of the church. I wrote a book about Bible prophecy. You know, you name it. I did it. 
And then age 35, it turned out the kids at school who said oh, I should be I should relax and get myself a girlfriend. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to be this great person. You know the idiots at school were right. You know, the kids at school were just sort of bumbling through. You said, no, nah, no, don't do that. I remember my best friend saying, don't be a missionary. Oh, please don't. I remember my English teacher calling Mormonism the Joseph Smith fan club. You know, everybody around me, they knew, and I thought I was so clever, and I had all this evidence, and I was, I had researchers and researchers, and after 35 years, the idiots were right, and I was wrong. It does give you a, a different aspect in life. And I sort of feel, again, Catholics have got a bit of experience with that, because there's an awful lot of things you guys have taught in the past, and now it's like, yeah, okay, maybe that wasn't quite what we thought. Maybe we weren't so clever. And that is so healthy. Um, and it doesn't mean that you then you're going to find the, the great truth the next day. Maybe the great truth is... A bit of humility. The great truth is seeing the bigger picture. I think history so what, is what it comes to. The longer history you've got, the better. Against being right. And and what's funny with Catholics in that uh, that historical long view is that the lesson they have taken from that obviously isn't that uh, you know the uh, the they haven't gotten like a fundamental humility in terms of having the truth. They just have a fundamental humility in terms of knowing with what degree of confidence they can apply their understanding of the truth, right? It's, it's, a, it's a limit on the, on the Catholics themselves and on the church itself um, in terms of just our ability to understand it, right? So the lesson that they got is not that there is no truth. The lesson that they got is we've got to have humility to see that someone else is going to be able to call us out if we have more confidence than we should um, because we have limited ability to understand everything around us, right? We are not God ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and it's called wisdom. You know, the Catholics have that wisdom and it comes from experience. It can only come from experience. You know, there's a reason why it was the elders in the tribe who'd be listened to the most and would also be disagreed with sometimes. Yeah, exactly. You've got to have that humility. I, I trained as a physics teacher. And uh, <laughs> I mean, that's why that's why I now stack shelves at a supermarket. Because I didn't realize I was, I was <laughs> autistic. Being an autistic teacher doesn't always work if you're trying to control kids and they are smarter than you. But anyway, right. in physics, one of the big things that really took away from that was this idea of spurious accuracy. If you've got a thermometer and it says it's 30 degrees, you do not write it is 30.0 degrees. What you write is this thermometer with a, a, a margin of error on this particular day in this particular place, you know, comes to 30. And if you write 30.0 or if you try to suggest 30.0 is some sort of absolute truth, you're being a fool and you're going to crash and burn. It's understanding these margins of error. And in fact, it's only as good as, as all these other variables. And I think in Catholicism, you've got that because you've got that experience. Whereas in Mormonism, we didn't. In Mormonism, it's Joseph Smith said, like, you know, I, I got the book of Abraham and I translated this from the writings of Abraham. And this is exactly what it is. End of story. That was it. If someone else comes and says, well, actually, I can prove it's wrong. They've got a problem. I sort of feel in Catholicism, yeah. you've got the experience and the wisdom to say, OK, we, we've, we're pretty sure this is the case, but... That is healthy. Well, That's all we could ever say about anything. So carry on. And I, and I appreciate the praise so much, right? And I have a hard time, you know, camping it down a little bit. But I should note that Catholicism is a very large tent, and there are certainly fundamentalists within Catholicism as well. Um, yeah. So you do have some of that in certain areas, especially with, you know, the classic cases. You know, the uh, the new converts who suddenly know everything with the utmost confidence, and they'll teach the uh, the people that have been Catholic for, you know. All their lives are, you know, for generations, not that, you know, one human isn't the same as another, but yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember when as a kid in a market stall, they had a sign up on the wall. They weren't selling the sign. It was just the guy who obviously ran up and hired a lot of people. The sign said, hire a teenager quickly while they still know everything. 
we live in a, in a Dunning-Kruger age. You know, the less we know, the more we think we know. I mean, I'm saying that. I mean, here I am attacking a fundamentalist. I'm a, there's also the argument, taking a long view, the fundamentalists do kind of somehow help us survive when others don't survive. I mean, Islam's always interested me. It's very easy from the Take outside. Sorts. Yeah, just to look at as Islam. You know, obviously, we in the West we like to present them as these wild fanatics. And yet historically, they are the only group that survives right next door to the West when everyone else was conquered because of the fanaticism, mm. as we call it. That was a survival trait. So you know, these things have their have their place. Mm. You see, if if your church gets too wishy washy, everyone leaves. It, it's not easy. You know, there's a maturity in there. There was a broad church, that's what again, like we said a broad church, that really, really matters. Once you start kicking people out, then it's like, oh dear, yeah, things are going to go wrong here. Um, it looks good in the short term, but in the long term, you, you need that variety. Like the autism thing, why do autistic people still exist? They really don't fit in. I mean, I couldn't get a job in marketing, I couldn't get a job in physics, so I've ended, ended up doing, why do autistic people exist? Because variety matters. You know, get the old autistic person, like uh, Paul Dirac, for example, who just sits there and works out this amazing logic of how the universe works and nobody else could do it because that's just the way mind works. We need variety. Yeah, yeah. We need everybody. Just yeah. having the ability to maintain all of the information and just make the connections. I mean, it's it has been just entertaining just listening. So, you know, I hope all of my listeners enjoy as well. Um, yeah. I will put a little note up the uh, front for length and also that uh, we're not actually talking about, uh, you know, the Fantastic Four and other uh, Jack Kirby characters. <laughs> But, yes. Uh, yeah. Bit of a bit of a bait and switch, but uh, I will not emphasize the Jack Kirby angle too much. Although, yeah. yes, there is the book uh, Jack Kirby's History of the Future. Mm -hmm. The appendices are where it's at, from what I understand. Um, if yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my, my argument is that the best the best storytellers do base all their stories on mythology. It's all the same story eventually, but uh, you don't notice that until you read a mythology and think, I recognize this story. He was this story is actually based on that mm -hmm. story. I mean, the the Fantastic Four, for example, they have a character called the Watcher. The Watcher is straight from the Book of Enoch. Um, it's all there. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken for about an hour. <laughs> I've actually haven't even got to the start of my list. What well, I was going to go through, but I realised I realised I probably wouldn't because I do tend to ramble. I was then just going to go through Genesis from chapter one, step by step. But I mean, that could be a whole year, you know. Just showing yeah I, I think we may do that in another uh, another yeah. installment yes absolutely i mean you, you probably need to get to bed for one thing it's, i mean it's six o'clock here which is it's lovely and sunny outside and the birds are waking up and it's all fresh and i'm gathering new york it may be not quite as sunny <laughs> <laughs> oh yes yes I, well, I, new, york, I, new york time anyhow i'm actually in ohio which is much more boring right, people right. don't know what time zone ohio is in and so i always forget whether it's daylight savings or not so i just say new york time and then people can match it up ah clever Oh, right. so, so you're not at the top of the Empire State Building, is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, yes, three, three clicks uh, east of Columbus, and we'll just define clicks as a random unit. Okay. <laughs> Americans are very good with their random units. <laughs> so everything oh, is yes. the size of something. Yeah. Okay. Use the SI units. They're there for a reason. <laughs> yeah, football uh, fields for the classic length. Yes, yes. Uh, how many? It's as big as how many elephants and fridges and things. Yeah, so I, I just want to finish then by just saying that, uh, that that's, what what you've got is my sort of rambling where I'm coming from. I do want to emphasise that yeah. I do have a list. If you wanted to, we could go through, you know, verse by verse. I would argue that every single date in Genesis chapter five 
matches precisely with what has been discovered in recent years, which is another reason why I, I give the, the scholars some slack. They're not following the latest discoveries in SUMA. But my argument is that every single date in Genesis chapter 5 matches what happened at SUMA on that date. And that when they're talking about what we think as people, like Adam, they were talking about tribes. And once you see it that way, it's history. Every single day. I mean, I recently, in the book, I, I have some of the dates up to uh, the Tower of Babel. Um, since writing that, just out of curiosity, I went as far as Abraham, and that's just amazing. It gets even better as you get later, because there's more and more evidence. Every single day, it's a history of the world. It's right there. And these aren't just small events. These are the biggest events in history, like the, the fall of the first civilization, for example. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm working on at the moment is the parallels between uh, Abraham and Kronos, uh, the mm. the guy in the, the Greek mythology. Mm. It just it blows this me away. Yeah, I, I love this stuff. I mean, again, I, I stand by and say this is history. This is the most important history, and every single date matches. But it doesn't match the way the fundamentalists think, and that, that's the problem. So there's really no market for this. The, the, the scholars don't want to know. The fundamentalists certainly don't want to know. <laughs> So I just published yeah. a little book and that's it. So, so thank you there very much for listening to me. Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you, Chris. I, I think what we might do with the dates, if it's all right with you, mm -hmm. um, and uh, don't take this the wrong way, but I think for the dates, we can do it like, you, have you, you caught my supplementals, right? Periodically, where I'll just basically like read off just a, basically a chunk of my source text, right? <laughs> and just uh, kind of present that more or less without commentary. Um, yeah. I think if you wanted, you could record um, the dates and the matching up, and I could release that as like you know a separate supplemental um, to this episode. That would uh, make sense because no, that's about, like, the best way of doing it. Because you know, it, it does make more sense if you just, just read it. Because I've, I've done a couple of interviews before, and I tend to sort of ramble and think, well, the person listening to this, they haven't got a clue what I'm actually saying, and I can't really think they're going to download my book and read the whole thing. People are busy. Yeah, well, it, I read this thing. So yes, I'll do that. Yeah, it, I'll do it's, that. it's one. It's one thing to you know just have a conversation because we're having a chat here, and then we can switch into kind of you know the uh, the audiobook appendix mode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to do that, you can just send me the audio file and I'll, yeah, I can I'll do that as an accompanying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At your convenience. Yep. I certainly will. All right. No problem. Okay. Well, thank you cool. again. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Thank you very much for the suggestion. This has been a great time. And uh, yeah, we'll have to do something like this again. Um, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank okay. you very much. See thank you later. Great time. Have, yeah. have a good night. Yeah, you too. Have a good morning. Bye. <laughs> All right, so that was good. All right, I will see you around. Thanks, yes, Chris. thank you again. I've got to get used to it. I guess I better headphones. It's been sounding really weird hearing myself and these tinny little things. So that's, that's yeah, right. no, I, every time I do something like this, I get a little takeaway. I'm like, okay, I'm going to tweak this slightly differently next time. So I think my big takeaway for this is I'm only going to bring the cheese that I intend to eat in the studio. That way, I don't have this block of cheese gradually warming. It <laughs> <laughs> should stay in the fridge. <laughs> All right. See you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.